Let's open our Bibles, please, to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. Let me just give you a brief of it. Verses 1 and 2, you have the king's in, in trouble. The king is in trouble. Verses 3 through 9, Isaiah sent and his message. He sent to Israel, Judah, and his message. And then verses 10 through 12, a sign is offered. And verses 13 through 16, the sign is given, the virgin birth, the sign of the virgin birth. And then verses 17 through 25, the remainder of the chapter, that's the fifth thought we have here, is the advent of the Assyrian. The Assyrians come in and take over because of the captivity, the Assyrian captivity. So let's begin reading with chapter 7, verse 1. And it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah. Now, remember, we'll stop there a moment and say that there's a king of Judah and a king of Israel. So here's the king of Judah. That reason, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remelah, king of Israel. So you have the king of Judah and the king of Israel. But reason, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remelah, king of Israel, went up toward Jerusalem to war against it but could not prevail against it. So Ahaz is the one that they're coming against. They're coming against the kingdom of Judah. And it's one of his own, the nation of Israel, is coming against Judah, along with the Syrian alliance. And so it says they came to war against Jerusalem but could not prevail against it. And the reason they could not prevail against it is it was not God's permissive will that they do so. In verse 2, And it was told the house of David, that's relating to the kingdom of Judah, saying, Syria is confederate with Ephraim. Syria is confederate with Ephraim. Ephraim is another name that is spoken of as Israel as a whole. And his heart was moved, and the heart of his people as the trees of the wood are moved with the wind. So they begin to be very disturbed about uh, this alliance of Israel and Syria coming against them. In verse 3, uh, God sends uh, Isaiah with, a, with uh, a message. In verses 3 through 9, he brings this message. And he says, Then said the Lord unto Isaiah, Go forth now to meet Ahaz. You go and tell the king of Judah. You go and meet Ahaz. Thou and Sherjassim, thy son. Now this was Isaiah's son, Sherjassim. And the, in the Bible it's always significant, or most of the time it's significant, that names uh, mean a great deal and in some cases they're prophetic of what's about to happen. And Sherjassim means the remnant shall return. So one of Isaiah's uh, sons, God had him to name him Sherjassim. So it would indicate that a remnant, in spite of all the captivity, in spite of all the trouble that Israel run up against, I mean Judah run up against, that uh, there would be a remnant that would return. And so that name, Sherjassim, means the remnant shall return. So it says in verse 3, Then said the Lord unto Isaiah, Go forth now to meet Ahaz, thou and Sherjassim thy son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. So he sends him forth. Not only with a message, but a message that would uh, bring the right consequences as far as uh, victory for God's people is concerned. Because he would go forth to the place, if you'll notice, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool, possibly cutting off the enemy's water supply, 
so that they could not do any more harm to them. You know, if you cut off the water supply of an army, you have a great problem. Uh, they, they have a great problem. They, don't, they can't function without water. You know, if you and I really realize how important it is, have you ever thought when your water is cut off just how things go downhill? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's really bad, isn't it? When the water is not there. We used to have that old saying, you never miss the water till the well runs dry, and that's true. And so, if they could cut off the water supply of the enemy, they would be helpless. They wouldn't have any water for themselves. They wouldn't have any water for their their uh, cattle, their uh, horses, their uh, means of warfare. And they would really be uh, hit in the right place to bring about complete uh, defeat. Verse 4 says, And say unto him, Say unto him, Take heed. He's telling uh, King Ahaz, He says, Take heed and be quiet. You know, Sometimes God has to come to us when we have an enemy come against us. And he says, oh, look, just take heed and be quiet. Just wait a minute. I've got this all figured out for you. You know, the Lord had it figured out for Ahaz. He says, take heed and be quiet. Fear not. Do not be afraid. Neither be faint-hearted. For the two tails of these smoking firebrands, these two kings that is coming up against him, for the fierce anger of reason with Syria and of the son of Ramelah, because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Ramla have taken evil counsel against thee, let us go up against Judah and vex it, and let us make a breach therein for us, and set a king in the midst of it, even the son of Tabiel. Thus saith the Lord God, it shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. God says, don't worry about these two kings that have come up against you. He says, don't fear. Be quiet. He says, take heed. Just be wide awake. And he says, furthermore, be quiet. Then he says, fear not. Look at that fourth verse. Neither be faint-hearted. And then he says, these kings, they're not going to have a chance. Because God says down verse 7, Thus saith the Lord, it shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. When it says, let us go up against Judah and vex it, that's what these kings had said. This is the message of the kings to Judah. Look at verse 6. Let us go up against Judah and vex it. It means uh, plot it, uh, plotted to ruin or tear it apart, vex it. And let us make a breach therein for ourselves. In other words, divide it among ourselves. That was the purpose of these two enemies of God's people. And set a king in the midst of it, even the son of Tabiel. In other words, they had their own conspiracy to set a king in the midst of Judah there so that they could uh, take charge. We talk about other governments trying to influence governments. That's been quite a bit in the news in this day and hour. It's nothing new. They tried to do it back in those days. Uh, look, here's Israel allied with Syria. What do you have over there in Syria today? You have, an, you have a, them against the people of God in Jerusalem. They're raising all kinds of cane because they're fixing to build some uh, places over there for the people to live in, and I realize it's a ticklish situation, but for for the Jews to trade land for peace will never be. They're just not going to do it, friend. They're going to they're going to keep their land, and uh, they're just going to they'll try to get a peaceful solution to the situation over there. But it's in the books that God's going to take care of His people, and the land belongs to them. 
regardless of what people say. It belongs to them. You know when that trouble started? You know when that trouble started? Between Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. And it's still there. And when Hagar had a son by Abraham, supposed to dedicate it to Sarah, when Abraham went into his bondmaid and and this son was born, Ishmael, and then later on, God gave Abraham and Sarah the son of promise, which was Isaac. From that time forth, and after Isaac got grown up, God told Abraham and Sarah to cast out the bondwoman and her son. God said they'd, uh, he'd find a place for them. Remember, Hagar was found out there deserted, and she was ready to, to die nearly. The son was about to die, and she thought they was going to die of thirst. But God... Uh, said, I'll spare you and I'll make of you a great nation. But still, she was not welcome in Abraham's stand anymore. And neither was that son. And so that's what, what you have over there today. Between the Arabs and the, and the Jews, you have this conflict that will always be there. And it will never be changed. And it started with an ill-conceived idea of Sarah, thinking that she could do what God was not doing for her. And she'd take matters into her own hands and she says, Abraham, you take my bondmaid and we'll have a woman, a child born of this woman, it'll be mine. And that'll be the son of the promise. But that's not what God said. God said he would give them a son of promise. And he said that was the son of the bondwoman. Which two things in the book of Galatians, Paul says, are an allegory. They're a lesson. They teach us that one is born of the free woman, which is Sarah, and one is the bondwoman, which is Hagar. And uh, you have that conflict, and it'll be there from now on. It's symbolical of a conflict you and I have. We're born uh, from above. That's typical of our new birth, a child of promise, Isaac. We are new creatures in Christ Jesus, but that old carnal nature that was born first, Ishmael, is still there. That old nature that we have is still there. And as long as we live, you and I will have a conflict too, personally and individually, spiritually. Someone says, well, when I, when I was saved, well, you know, everything, I got rid of the old nature. No, you didn't. You still have it there. But God gave you a new nature, and you've got a battle to fight, and the new nature is, is stronger. If you'll, the Bible says, if we, if we walk in the Spirit, we shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. But there's another if. If we walk not in the Spirit, if we walk in the flesh, we will fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And that's the need for spiritual life, isn't it? And that's the need for a spiritual walk. But anyway, God told uh, these not to be fearful. Verse 4, Take heed and be quiet. Fear not, neither be faint-hearted. For the two tails of these smoking firebrands, that's what they were. These two kings were like smoking firebrands. For the fierce anger of reason with Syria and the son of Remela, because Syria and Ephraim, Ephraim symbolical of Israel here, the son of Remela, having taken evil counsel against thee. Evil counsel, God says, I can overrule it. And their evil counsel was, let us go up against Judah and vex it. Let us uh, plot it to ruin. Let's tear it apart. Let's divide it unto ourselves. Make a breach therein for ourselves, for us. And set a king in the midst of it. In other words, we're going to influence the outcome. We're going to cause... Uh, Judah to be controlled by a king of our own choice, and therefore we're going to conspire in this way. And it says, Thus saith the Lord God, it shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. Have you ever heard wicked and evil threats against you? People say, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and there's bad things going to happen to you. 
Don't worry about it. Go back to these words in verse uh, 4. Take heed. Look at it, verse 4. And be quiet. And what else? And fear not. And then it says, neither be faint-hearted. And then he tells what's going to happen to those enemies that have so conspired. Don't worry about it, God says. You know, you and I worry about everything. It's just like a giant out there. All of our troubles and all of our trials, they just become bigger and bigger. And there's one on this side and one on that side. Like these two kings. Boy, they're just going to devour us. They're going to make a breach. They're going to vex us. They're going to take the spoil. They're going to do all this and that and the other. Just stay true to God and He'll take care of you. That's all you got to do. Just simple as that. A lot of people say, it's not simple as that for me, preacher. Have you ever tried it? Do you try it? You say, I try it and I still have troubles. Yes, but the Bible says, call upon Him in the time of trouble and He will deliver you. And He will deliver us out of all of our troubles. It doesn't mean we won't have them, but He'll deliver us out of them. And that's the good thing. And doesn't it make it you happy to know, instead of just having to be prevented from getting into some problem, now, that's good too, but instead of that, once you have had that problem, to see the hand of God work and bring you out of it. You get a sickness, you get a problem, you get a disease, you get a hurt, you get a, a financial upset, or you get something wrong in the family, you get a, a problem here or there, and God works it out, then it makes you look back and think, say, well, God, I sure thank you, I thank you for working this out for me. In answer to your prayers. And we've seen all kinds of things happen in this church as far as uh, our families, you know, mothers and fathers, sisters, brothers that have had problems and needs. And we've seen the Lord work them out. And He will continue to. And according to His divine will, He will work it out for for, uh, our, our good and for His glory. Now let's look at this next verse. So you see there in verse... Uh, Six, that what they predicted didn't come to pass. And verse 7 says, Thus saith the Lord God, It shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. Well, if God says that, don't worry about it then. For the head of Syria, verse 8, is Damascus. And the head of Damascus is reason. In other words, he's coming down to the king. Damascus in Syria. And then reason the king, king of Syria. If you go back to verse 1, that reason the king of Syria. And with three... And within three score and five years shall Ephraim be broken, that it be not a people. These two, God says, I have the answer for them. Verse 9 says, And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remelah's son. He says, If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. My, That's a good call to repentance, isn't it? If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. If we refuse to believe and to trust in God, then where's our stability? If they did, where was theirs? And let me just say to you and I, if ye will not believe, surely ye shall not be established. That is in a spiritual way. Faith comes, and then by faith we're established in the truth and in the Word. Belief is equivalent to faith. If you will not believe, surely ye shall not be established. Look at verse uh, 10. Moreover, now verses 10 through 12, a sign is offered, and they refuse the sign that that God offers them. He offers them to speak of a sign and ask for a sign that God would vindicate them, that God would uh, answer and be with them. And it says, Moreover, the Lord spake unto Ahaz. Now, he's speaking to Ahaz through Isaiah the prophet. You see, God speaks through his prophets. The Bible says, 
God at some sundry times and diverse matters spake unto the fathers by the prophets. So he spoke through the prophets. That's Hebrews 1 verse 1 that I was quoting. But he hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. So look at this. Moreover, the Lord spake again unto Ahaz, saying, Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. God invites them to ask a sign. Isaiah is speaking here. Ask either in the depth or in the height above. He says you can ask it in the heavens or in the earth. You can ask it in the depth or in the height above. You can go down in the depths of the sea. You can go in the depths of the earth. You can go down to the earth itself. You can go in the heights above into the heavens and ask for a sign. And he was invited to. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. Well, by the way, when God gives you an invitation to ask, you're not tempting the Lord. And he hesitated to put God to the test because he just really didn't believe that God would give a sign. It's unbelief. Remember in verse 9 it says, If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. You believe God will do what He says He'll do? God said He would give them a sign. Now, if God tells you to ask for something, it's a different matter than you just saying, going out there and abruptly saying, I'm going to ask God for a sign. That's your own idea. There's a lot of people do that too, don't they? But when God says, I will do such and such for you, then it's not... It's not uh, presumption to do what God invites you to do. Then look at verse uh, 13. And he said, Hear now, O house of David, it is a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? What was Isaiah saying? You can weary men in such a way as how you're acting, but are you going to weary God also? Therefore, the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Now, He gives them a sign that is not only... Uh, that that will extend beyond this time of their of the Syrian captivity and and extend beyond this time of trouble and it applies to the promised Messiah. In other words, eventually this is going to happen. The Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. You know there have been all of those critics that have said that uh, this means a young married woman. The word is a l. M-A-H in the Hebrew, Alma. It's the way it's in, uh, translated from the Hebrew. So, it means a virgin. But the critics have said it means a young married woman. Well, there's a difference in a young married woman and a virgin. A young married woman could be, and she might not be. But the thing about it is, God is promising that through a virgin, Christ would be born. And there are other scriptures that prove the virgin birth of Christ. Let me give you four, if you care quickly. If you don't have time to look at them right now, please copy these down if you have a pencil. Genesis 24:43. We'll look at them in a moment. Genesis 24:43. Exodus 2 verse 8. Psalm 68:25. And the Song of Solomon 1 verse 3. I'll give them to you again. Genesis 24, verse 43. Exodus 2, verse 8. Psalm 68, 25. Song of Solomon 1, verse 3. And by the way, the same word is used here, and it means virgin. The same word, and we'll give them to you in a moment. And in these and other passages, as well as these four, the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament some 300 years before Christ, translates the Hebrew word A-L-M-A-H that we just refers to here that says virgin, A-L-M-A-H, 
with P-A-R-D-E-N-O-S, the Greek for virgin. And Matthew 1, verse 23 confirms that that word means the same thing in the Old Testament as it is used in the Greek in the New Testament. In fact, this translation was 300 years before Christ. It's called the Septuagint. It comes from the 70 that were used, that were scholars that translated the Hebrew into the Greek. And the Greek translation of this Old Testament, of the Old Testament, 300 years before Christ, translates that word, Hebrew word, A-L-M-A-H, with a Greek word, P-A-R-D-E-N-O-S, both meaning virgin. They give it with the word virgin. And Matthew 1.23 confirms it. But let me give you these other scriptures quickly. In uh, Genesis 24.43, now let's listen to this. It says, Behold, I stand by the well of water, and it shall come to pass that when the virgin cometh forth to draw water, and I say unto her, Give me, I pray thee, a little water of thy pitcher to drink. And of course the situation is when Abraham's servant was going to seek a wife for Isaac. And this woman would appear there. And the word here is the same word that we're talking about. It's the Hebrew word A-L-M-A-H, which means virgin. It says it right here. Uh, let me give you the next one. In uh, Exodus 2, verse 8. Exodus 2, verse 8. And Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, Go, and the maid, the word maid here is the same word, or the virgin, but it's called, she's called here a maid, went and called the child's mother. But it's the same word. This is uh, Moses' sister. And at this time, she was still a, a virgin. And the maid went and called the child's mother. So there, the same word is used for maid as it's used in the other place. Now then, uh, Psalm 68, verse 25, we'll find uh, other scriptures that speak of damsels. This is one of them. It says, The singers went before... Uh, The players on instruments followed after. Among them were damsels playing with timbrels. And it's the same word. Young ladies coming. Damsels that were virgins playing with timbrels. And then you have another place. Song of Solomon 1 verse 3. That's what we just got through teaching before we start Isaiah. It's right before you get to Isaiah. Song of Solomon 1 verse 3. It says, Because of the Savior... Savor, rather, because of the savor of thy good ointments, thy name is as ointment poured forth. Therefore do the virgins love thee. And the same word is used. And in the New Testament, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, verse uh, 23, it says, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son. And it's quoting this prophecy of Isaiah uh, 7.14 that we're just studying. And, and they shall, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. So the virgin birth of Christ is interpreted in the New Testament from this passage of Scripture, and it's definitely confirmed that this is what it's talking about. So, back in Isaiah 7, verse 14 again. So this is a sign. The virgin birth becomes God's... Uh, Reminder of his everlasting covenant with David. Remember when Jesus was to be born, the announcement was made to to Mary. He shall sit upon the throne of his father David, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. This was the promise that was made back here. That God would remember his covenant with David, and that the kingdom of David would never cease to be. 
that there would come one that would sit upon the throne of David eternally. And by the way, Strong's says, there is no instance where it can be proved that this word designates a young woman who is not a virgin. There's no place that it can be proved that it does not mean that. Or we have all these kinds of critics that come along and say, well, it can mean this, it can mean that, it can mean a lot of other things. But it cannot be proven that it designates a young woman who is not a virgin. It can't go in the opposite direction and say it definitely refers to one that is not. You see, if you can prove something that is not, just like our salvation. Let me give you an instance. For by grace are you saved through faith. Listen carefully now. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Now look, you can say, well, I don't quite understand faith and grace and being saved. Well, that's simple enough, but even if you didn't, listen. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Is not of, uh, is, is not of works. It is not of works, lest any man should boast. So when you put the not in there, that proves that it's not this. Whatever it is by grace through faith, you may not fully understand. I think it's simple enough to understand. Don't misunderstand that. But, on the other hand, whatever you do not understand about faith and grace, you know one thing for sure, that salvation is what? Not of works, lest any man should boast. So when it puts that not in there, you have the ultimate proof that it's not one thing, so it has to be something else. So it's by grace through faith. Then we come to an understanding of what salvation is. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So here it's this verse of Scripture, this word virgin, as Strong says, there is no instance where it can be proved that this word designates a young woman who is not a virgin. So by putting that word who is not, you're saying that everything is in favor of it designating this word as to everyone that's referred to as one, as being a virgin. Okay? It says in verse 15. Well, let's read verse 14 again. We didn't finish it off. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. In the New Testament we find that the word Emmanuel being interpreted, which is God with us. So when this one that was born of a virgin and was born of Mary did, did come into this world, he came into this world as God with us. And he was indeed God with us. And Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says, But thou Bethlehem, we know where he was born. Micah 5 2 tells us where he will be born. And Micah 5 2 says, But, and thou Bethlehem Ephrathah. Now listen carefully. Art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall he come forth that is to be ruler in Israel. Then, what does it say? It describes him. Whose goings forth have been from the days of eternity. That Christ that was born in Bethlehem and laid in the manger, that the Bible declares that that one that would be born, his goings forth, his existence, his being, his person, would be from the days of eternity that this would not be the beginning of that individual, that he's always been. From the days of infinity, actually, is a stronger word. If you have a marginal reference there on Micah 5.2, it'll say the days of eternity. But actually, it would include the days of infinity. Infinite. We speak in Isaiah 9, verse 6, 
of the infinite Christ. And use a son is born, a child is given, uh, and it tells us who uh, his name shall be called, uh, Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So it's referring to the same person. And we speak of an infinite Christ who has all these designations as names for him. What are they? 9 verse 6 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase and peace, of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end, upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. That's why the announcement was made of such nature to Mary that it would be uh, exactly that way. Okay, let's go back to Isaiah chapter 7 again. It tells us in verse 15, Butter and honey shall he shall he eat that he may know how to refuse the evil and choose the good. What's it speaking of here? It's speaking of the fact that he will know how to discern between what is evil and what is not evil and what is good. Now, butter and honey are things that uh, distinct are distinct from one another, but he would know how to choose between evil and good. It doesn't mean that evil, either one of these things are evil. It means that he would have the sense of understanding what is evil and what is good. By the way, we don't have any time that a child, Jesus, you remember Jesus grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and with men. Remember after he went down to Jerusalem? At the age of 12 was found in the temple. His parents had lost him there. And they supposed him to be in the company and he wasn't there. And they came back and they found him in the uh, temple discussing and uh, reasoning with the uh, doctors of law and of uh, the Word of God. And uh, remember at the age of 12, now as far as the Jews are concerned, at the age of 13, Judaism accepts the fact that, or designates the fact that their young men reach an age of responsibility and accountability at the age of 13. Well, Jesus was only 12 years of age, but he was a little ahead of them. I think he was ahead in everything, don't you? But anyway, he was proven already to be capable of taking responsibility and being accountable. You know, if there's, and I'll get to something else in this a moment, but just let me hesitate here for a minute and say that every person ought to realize that we do become accountable and responsible. So I don't know what age. The Bible does not, the Scripture does not, give an age of accountability as such for young boys and girls. But they do become, they come to an age of accountability. And whatever age that is, whether it's, you know, there's a lot of folks say, well, eight years old. Well, where'd you get that? Well, I thought that'd be a good, a good age to say they're accountable. Well, what about five years old? What about nine years old? I mean, the, the Bible doesn't give any age, definite age, and say, well, he hasn't reached the age of accountability. How do you know? Every person's an individual. And the Bible, the Scripture, doesn't give any bounds for that. So you see one little boy or girl come in and they're saved. And they realize they're a sinner about four or five years old, some of them even younger, and they accept the Lord and they want to be baptized. Who are you and I to say that they don't feel they're accountable? 
Some, some children become accountable and responsible earlier than others. And some it takes a great long time. But at least uh, we know that, that God, when, when the person does come to that age of accountability and they say they want to accept the Lord as Savior, you and I should never object. We should never say they're too young. Or if, if they come to the age of nine or ten years old and say, well, they haven't accepted the Lord yet, we get all excited and say, well, you know, they should have already accepted the Lord. Well, maybe, maybe not. I think these words, take heed and be quiet, fear not, neither be faint-hearted, might apply. We just wait and let God take care of the situation. But we get so anxious. And we want to do things in our own time when God has a spe- specific time for what He does. And if, if you were saved at an early age, we're just thankful for it. If you had to wait a little longer, we're thankful for that. But anyway, let's go back to this. It says in verse 15, Butter and honey shall he not eat, that he may know uh, to refuse evil and to choose good. Let me give you a scripture for what I just was t- telling you. Uh, in the book of... Um, let's see, where would I find it? In Deuteronomy... How about Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 39? It says this, Moreover, your little ones, which ye said should be a prey, and your children, which in that day had no knowledge between good and evil, had no knowledge between good and evil, they shall go in thither, and unto them will I give it, and they shall possess it. God was saying that these children that Israel thought was, were, that they were protecting, your little ones, that they thought would be a prey, they would be in danger if they went into the land that God promised them. And they, the, this adult generation, all from 20 years old and upward, did not believe God and they perished in the wilderness and they were so worried about their little ones and their children that they said they'd be a prey if they went ahead and did what God wanted them to do. Well, God permitted all that adult generation to die in the wilderness because of their unbelief. And if you remember, there were only two men, Joshua and Caleb, that entered into the land. Even Moses himself didn't go into the land. And it says here, Your children, which in that day had no knowledge between good and evil, they shall go in thither, and unto them will I give it, and they shall possess it. So in the Scripture here, there's no age assigned to the so-called age of accountability. And we find that uh, that's, that differs and does it should differ with each and every child because we're not all the same. We don't grow up as fast. Some of them grow up faster. Some children seem to be grown when they're 12, 14 years old. And I mean, they take responsibilities for adults. And others, uh, they get 30 or 40 years old and they never grow up. That's the truth. You check it out. I've seen young men that grow up and take responsibility of raising the family and taking care of uh, their parents and and home and uh, finances and various things at a very early age and others it takes a lifetime. So, we can't set those ages. Well, back to this. I don't know how much that had to do with this, but we'll go on. And, uh, back in Isaiah chapter 7, it says, Butter and honey shall he eat that he may know how to refuse the evil and to choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and to choose the good and the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings. In other words, you're not in any danger because God knows how to take care of it. The Lord shall bring upon thee and upon thy people and upon thy father's house days that have not come from the day of Ephraim 
from the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. In other words, Ephraim is another name for Israel. Sometimes, of course, you know the history of that. Joseph's two two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And uh, this one is representative here of Israel. Many times it's spoken of in this language. And it says, The days, days that have not come from the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, even the king of Assyria. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall hiss for the fly that is in the uttermost part of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. These armies would be like the fly and the bee. Assyria, I mean Egypt was spoken of in the term of the fly and Assyria the bee. And these would be the things that would come in. And God would hiss for them. He would uh, whisper to them. And His voice would be heard in Egypt and Assyria. Remember we ran across that word the other night? And we said something about radioing or God giving them a message. Well, God can hiss or He can whisper and nations at the end of the world will hear. See, He doesn't have to talk loud. That word hiss means whisper. That He just says it and they hear it and they respond. And they don't even know why. They don't even know why they're doing it. Just like God did that in the days when Jesus was born. Remember? Uh, it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Well, who put that bug in his ear? Said, now's the time to do this. They could have done it before. They could have waited till later. It could have already been enacted and be in progress. But at that very time, God said he hissed. He whispered in their ear and says, go ahead and do it. The Bible says the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. Let me just say this and I don't know how much time we've got, but I want to say this and we'll get back into our text, that God has everything under control. You and I, we get so worried and upset and say, oh, this is going to be terrible and something's going to happen and we're... Well, tragedies come, uh, various earthquakes come, floods come, a drought comes, and all the bad things that happen to us, but God is still in control. And sometimes we forget that. We say, well, look at these leaders all over the world and look at these wicked ones and look at the politics and look at these governments and look at Russia. And now we're getting a new scare that they didn't destroy their stuff and they're still holding it back there and they're ready to, to make, you know, it's been speculated in the last few days that maybe that they're not doing all they're supposed to and getting rid of their nuclear uh, uh, weapons as well as the things that, it takes to make them. And all this is coming out. But listen, God's still in control. He put a quietus to the other, didn't He? A few years back. Well, if it rises up again, He knows how to handle that too. So you and I would get scared to death. I think if, we, if I could give you one word to close with, and we won't have time to finish this chapter because I want to get some more things, but if I could give you one word to close with, in spite of all the fears around about us, look at verse 4 again. Take heed and be quiet, fear not, neither be faint-hearted. And it says concerning these two tales of smoking firebrands, that would be indicative of our enemies or our troubles or everything that we might fear that would come now and in our own lives and in the future. Just trust God with it. Because he says in verse 7, Thus saith the Lord God, Now if it's not in God's plan, it won't stand. It shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. So let's don't be overdue. Uh, 
with our fears. Let's just take things a day at a time and trust the Lord with them, okay? Well, anyway, we went from here to there. Probably scattered it a whole lot, but maybe you got something out of it. We appreciate your presence and your prayers.